This episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance and Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hey, listeners, it's your host from Parks and Recollection, Jim O'Hare and Greg Levine. And we are super excited because we have a very special guest this week, a special episode with Mr. Adam Scott, a.k.a. Ben Wyatt. That's right. And he's going to share with us some behind-the-scenes memories, like his very first table read. I was very nervous, but as table reads were, it was an incredibly warm room and uh, really responsive, really fun atmosphere. So be sure to tune in for an exciting episode of Parks and Recollection, wherever you got your podcasts. Hello, people of Earth. It's me, Tall John Shear, a.k.a. Paul Shear. My book, Joyful Recollections of Trauma, is now available to pre-order. And why is pre-ordering important? Well, because that's how the publishing world runs. So I would so appreciate it if you pre-ordered my book. And if you do, save your receipt because you can head to my website and the first 3,000 people who register, I will send you a postcard. I'm going to write, handwrite a postcard just for you, addressed to you with your name. And you will also get access to an exclusive part of my website, paulshear.com, that has never before seen videos and pictures. That's right. Pre-order people. I take care of you. You take care of me. And this book really is a testament to the How Did This Get Made community. I wouldn't have written it without the How Did This Get Made audience reacting to my stories. People, do me a favor. Good old Paul wants you to support him and get his book. I would be forever grateful. It's available wherever you get your books and get the audiobook. And yes, I'm reading it. You can also get it as a Kindle and it's available in the UK and Canada. Thanks for your help. The year is 2002, and pop, six, squish, uh uh-uh, Cicero, podcast. The movie, Chicago. everyone and welcome to Unspooled. I'm Amy Nicholson. And I'm Paul Shear, and this is a podcast where we are endeavoring to find the 100 greatest movies of all time. And when we do, we are going to put them into outer space. That is the truth. We've already talked to an astronaut. We know it's possible. Right now we are visiting musicals and musicals where the music is a part of the story. It's not just a performance element of the movie. We have gone from Nightmare Before Christmas into Greece, and now a giant classic, Chicago. Uh, This is one that you all asked for. So I'm excited that we are uh, jumping into another giant musical, but also one that I think people remember really fondly. Yeah, Chicago is the musical that at the time was credited for bringing back the musical. But when Chicago hit theaters, people basically grabbed onto it like it was, you know, the last bottle of water in the desert. And they're like, can we bring the musical back? We've been through so many dark, dark years of musicals. You know, the post-Grease 2 years of the world in which musicals were not considered cool. And so this, a classic, unabashed, very lingerie-friendly, shiny, loud musical, felt like hope 
I think, to millions well, of musical fans and in and, and hope that was proven right. Because I feel like now we're living in a decent time for musicals. We have good ones coming right. out fairly frequently. This is before Book of Mormon. This is before even You're in Town. Like these musicals that I think started to... There was a time on Broadway where it was just kind of bringing back Oklahoma, bringing back the classics. But I think... Uh, at least being in New York at this time, Chicago and Cabaret were really two bastions of saying, like, we're bringing back a cooler version of a musical. Yes, it's a revival, but we're going to make this contemporary in some sense. We are going to make it sexy and stylized. And I I think of both of those musicals uh, because I saw them at roughly the same time or within, you know, the same years. Um, And they both have a similar feeling to them in the way that they were staged. Uh, Intimate, small, not full giant sets, uh, really interesting in Chicago is now, and I believe still running on, uh, Broadway. It just nonstop runs. And I don't know now with the COVID of it all, but you it, know, it you'll just have reopened. People. It just reopened a few months ago and they were like, of yeah. course, Broadway's back. We got Chicago going. Oh, and you'll have football stars in there. You'll have Erica Jane in there. It's a revolving door of interesting celebrity cameos. And then of course, not just Broadway, but like being musicals back on screen. I think Chicago ushers that back in. I think it's safe to say that Chicago made it cool to like musicals again in a way that I, you know, not only do I think we wouldn't have The Greatest Showman without Chicago being a massive, massive hit, I think we wouldn't have, you know, even things like High School Musical. We, you know, we wouldn't have had this belief that maybe kids do want to listen to like some cool live action musicals without Chicago being huge, which means we wouldn't have any Zac Efron if we didn't have Chicago. And I think that would be a shame. So, Amy, some very interesting reactions with Nightmare Before Christmas. And I wanted to get your take on some of them. I read these on the Discord. And one of them was talking about the theme of cultural appropriation. Like, what if this movie is foreshadowing the problems with cultural appropriation? I thought it was actually a very astute point, but not necessarily, uh, I think, something that was on the mind of anyone making it. But I love that idea that you see something that you like, you think it's cool, and then you just adopt it wholesale without really understanding anything about it. And then you kind of, you devalue it. What do, what do you think about that in regards to Nightmare? I mean, I guess that reading does bridge the gap between, you know, say the sincere love that Jack Skellington seems to have for Christmas and his like complete lack of understanding or comprehending it at all and kind of just giving up and being like, well, these are the totems I like because I, because like, yeah, remember how we were talking about in that episode that like one of the original pitches for that movie or the way it was sold to the press was that it was about a a skeleton who kind of like hates and is jealous of Christmas, but that's not exactly it at all. And so I, I am interested in stories about love and passion and good intentions that go awry yeah, I mean, there's also another read here that people were bringing up. They were talking about the idea that maybe it's good to take a break. You get so caught up in your own shit that it's nice to bring in different things. It's nice to come back, like, to fill the tank creatively. So in a way, Jack Skellington is is simply doing that. He's going out <laughs> uh, and seeing that, and, and that could be the moral. And people really got caught up on what I was saying, like, I don't know what the moral is. And I'm like, this is not about me searching for a moral. I don't need a character to arc. I don't need something. But I'm like, oh, it felt like we were leading to something. It feels like it. It feels like it's a morality play, or it feels like a 
a children's movie where there's a lesson learned. It doesn't have to be the biggest of all lessons, but I just felt like it got muddled. And it's not like it, it stopped me from enjoying it. It was just trying to parse it and trying to figure out what it was. And some people simply were like, I like it because it looks cool. And I think that's why most people like it. And I also don't disagree with that. (laughs) (laughs) But wait, Paul, does that mean that this podcast, Unspooled, is your Christmas because you started it because you needed a break from oh your life gosh, of only watching bad movies? Look at that. Now, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe. I don't know. Now, maybe, am I Jack Skellington? Oh, God. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think, you know, there is a lot of just leeway with musicals. If it looks cool, if it feels cool, um, and it's fun and the songs are catchy, it works. And I think that that's going to be something we're going to revisit a little bit today as we talk about Chicago. But I just wanted to share some of the comments on the Discord and keep them coming. We are reading them. We are looking at your suggestions. And you are always playing such a big part of the show. And that's discord.gg slash Paul Shear. Check out our brand new shirts that we have. And we have new ones coming up. Uh, Actually, one coming up very soon based on Nightmare Before Christmas. Uh, You can go to tpublic.com slash unspooled to check out what we have for the holidays. The year is 2002. George Bush creates the Department of Homeland Security in order to fight threats of terrorism. U.S. Airways, WorldCom, and Kmart file for bankruptcy. Former U.S. President Jimmy Carter wins the Nobel Peace Prize for dedicating his life to peace and democracy. Kelly Clarkson wins the first American Idol contest. The former CFO of Enron is indicted on 78 counts of wire fraud and money laundering. And the hot films are... Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets, The Pianist, and today's film, Chicago. Amy, who's in it? What's it about? Who made it? Give me all that jazz. (laughs) Chicago. This is Rob Marshall's adaptation of a Bob Fosse adaptation of a Maureen Watkins play from the 1920s about two murderers that she covered herself as a Chicago reporter who was there at the time. Uh, More of Maureen and all of that history later. But what matters now is that Chicago is the story of two female, you know, wannabe musical stars who are unable to sing for real audiences because they are both in prison for murdering their husbands and a sister. Uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones plays Velma Kelly. Renee Zellweger plays Roxy Hart. Richard Gere plays their lawyer, Billy Flynn. And Queen Latifah plays their warden. And we also have my beloved John C. Riley, man who shares my birthday, uh, playing Roxy's dumb, really kicked around a husband, Amos, who gets cheated on, who gets lied to, but keeps coming back for more, which I think is a good metaphor for Chicago in general. This is a movie and a play that is known for just being nasty, cynical, unrepentant about its uh, lack of faith in the human spirit. And audiences like love it. Uh, They kept coming back for this version. You know, Chicago on stage is the second longest running musical in Broadway history. Chicago the movie got 13 Oscar nominations and won six of them, including Best Picture. We must love the nasty. Take a listen. Kill a guy a while back. Yeah, who can keep him straight anymore? 
So Chicago hit theaters on December 27th, 2002. It actually hit theaters one month exactly after another musical about another performer who is pretty tough and must succeed at all costs, even if that means beating up Michael Shannon if he has been to your mom. And the song from that movie is number one on the Billboard charts this week when Chicago comes out. Of course I am talking about the movie Eight Mile and Eminem. And yes. lose yourself. His palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on his sweater already. Mom's spaghetti. He's nervous, but on the surface he looks calm and ready to drop palms. But he keeps on forgetting what he wrote down. The whole crowd goes so loud. He opens his mouth, but the words won't come out. He's choking how? Everybody's joking now. The clock's run out. Time's up. Over. Loud. Snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity. Oh, there goes gravity. Choke. He's so mad, but he won't. <laughs> Do you think in Eminem there's a musical kid just wanting to come out? Truthfully, there is something about rap and hip hop where they are story songs, just like musicals. You know, they're they're talking about something. They're telling you how they feel. Uh, there is something to all rappers having a little bit of that musical bone in their body. I mean, 8 Mile could be in this series in a way. I mean, the music there is a lot in the performance, but it is telling the story of him becoming Eminem. So it works. It's kind of like Hedwig in a way. I hear that. I, mean, I think I was just asking if you think that he's, you know, a nerd. I mean, what he really is right now is Eminem is now like a restaurant empresario. Have I you saw that. heard about this? Have you heard about Mom's Spaghetti, his new yes. line of Italian restaurants? Get your sweaters ready, Detroit. Mom's Spaghetti is coming to 2131 Woodward Avenue. Want some road pasta after the game? Got that. Meatballs? You know we got that. What about the Spaghetti sandwich? Mom's got that too. Get ready to get some Mom's Spaghetti, Detroit. Opening in the alley next to the Union Assembly this September. 313-888-8388. Mom's Spaghetti. It's all ready. Ready, 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 ready. God bless him. I have to say, I saw Eminem in concert, and it was after the true, like, hype of Eminem, and even after, like, even G-Unit was a thing. He came out at Bonnaroo or Coachella, one of those, and his show was phenomenal. He put on an amazing show. The guy cleaned up his his body, not his act. I mean, he cleaned up his body like he's, you know, off drugs and stuff, and I still find him to be... At points, look, he's overblown. He is a diva in a way, and I love it. Like, I'm all in for Eminem. Like, he'll get into those battles. He'll go to town on people. Like, there is something, uh, I don't know. I'm all I'm all in. I'm all in on uh, on Marshall Mathers. I have nothing bad to say about him. Uh, but I do love that he still likes to fucking stir the pot, man. Him and Machine Gun Kelly going at it. And whoever came up with this idea for Mom's Spaghetti, a drive through restaurant, like, sure. Like marinara in a cup. <laughs> Let's do it. I'm ready to go. Um, I mean, you never really like, first of all, I will say that as a avid listener of Eminem, I never thought that mom spaghetti was like a good thing. It wasn't like, oh, mom, his mom made such great spaghetti. Like, like it wasn't like it wasn't like uh, Billy Joel opening up uh, Italian restaurant, like where at least there's like a uh, like Oh, I like this place. There's something here. Uh, you know, even you mean that it's not is even a, like a like a Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville. Yeah, where like that man go. knows a yeah. margarita. I trust well, his margarita. Yeah, I buy, I buy into it. There's some, nothing about 
Eminem or Marshall Mathers that makes me go like he like it seems like he was eating SpaghettiOs out of a can. Like it didn't feel like his mom was like, hey, I'm an Italian chef. I'm going to make you the best spaghetti, Eminem. You know, Marshall. Uh, it's just true. funny. He doesn't like anything about his mom. Why would we assume she's a good chef? I, I, I don't know. But look, you know, there's a smart business person out there because, hell, I'll fucking go to my mom's spaghetti. Like, it, but it is funny when you go the root of it is just bizarre. It's bizarre. It's like, well, 50 Cent should be selling bulletproof vests. I don't know. I mean, well, even that makes more sense. I guess like that's what I'm trying to feel. Like there's nothing. It's like I can't like, you know, I can't figure out what the <laughs> like name me an artist. Like what? who's somebody that you like that you listen to? Oh, man. Uh, meatloaf. Meatloaf. Meatloaf selling meatloaf would be about the akin thing. That would like because there's nothing about meatloaf that cries out that he knows about meatloaf, that he makes meatloaf. But like meatloaf's meatloaf is a is very equal. You gave me a nice softball there because I would have really, <laughs> uh, you know, really would have uh, struggled there. This is an interesting musical, right? Because it's one of those musicals that is beloved because of all the accolades it gets, all the stars that are in it. It is... I think very hard to look at something that gets so many awards and that has so much star power in any other way than a complete and total success. Like this is, and I think probably many people's opinion, the epitome of a Broadway musical turned film. I mean, and this movie then becomes like the highest grossing live action musical. It makes $306 million, which is huge. And it manages to hold on to that until Mamma Mia comes through. I mean, it's gigantic. And I have to say, in my memory, I remember thinking it was kind of bad. And I was confused that it was so popular. So I have been intrigued by the fact that it has been um, suggested by so many listeners that it made it feel like, okay, okay, let's go back. Let's do it. Let's get real. Let's do Chicago. I think my issue with Chicago is in rewatching it, just to get it out of the way in the beginning, is... It's too much of a slavish adaptation to what was going on in the Broadway version. This was the Broadway version. Yes, and it's a little bit different, but there's a part of me that would prefer to see the Broadway version that was on Broadway the same way that we have seen Hamilton. Like, Hamilton hasn't been adapted to be a film. It was filmed to be a live presentation of what happened on stage. And I think they did a really great job of Hamilton. Um, and in a way, that was the smartest thing they could do because you're acknowledging the form in which it was successful. And I think that Chicago has this problem, which is it is so much a stage show that has like movie interstitials and I find it to be neither here nor there, even though there's great performances. And I think the thing that elevates it and makes people think that it's great are the songs. The songs are fantastic. You can't beat the songs. Like the songs are, without a doubt, phenomenal. The, the actors are doing a great job. The dances are great. But it's not a movie. It doesn't feel like a movie. It kind of feels like, um, you know, like a songbook in a way. 
Well, it's strange, right? Because, you know, sometimes we'll see plays that are adapted into movies and you can just feel that they're a play. You know, you feel the camera kind of hangs around a really long time on every scene. It sort of follows people from here to there. And you feel kind of, you feel the walls and you don't feel the sense of somebody being like, oh, we can break these walls. We can do something new. And Chicago, when it first starts, it seems like determined to prove that, like, I have no walls. I can do anything. I'm Chicago. I mean, the very first shot that we see is like this intense zoom into um, Renee Zellweger's eyes. You know, you go all the way up inside her pupil. You know, the sort of look Mm -hmm. at an actress that you can't do on stage. You know, that you can only do a zoom like that in a movie. And then from there, it's like, I'll show you what a movie is. We're going to have like a million edits. We're going to be frantic. We're going to show you feet. Only feet. You're going to only see feet. Did you know you can only see Velma's feet? You can never only see Velma's feet on stage. You're going to only see them now. And it's moving breakneck with an energy that says, I am taking full advantage of everything technical that a movie can do. I mean, just you can hear the energy even in this clip. Yeah, that opening sequence is phenomenal. And it actually gets you, I think, really excited for the film, almost to the point where you get to John C. Riley's entrance. It is working as one type of film. And then I think it switches a little bit because it's all that jazz. Catherine Zeta Jones looks amazing. You see her come in, there's this frenetic energy. You're watching like Dominic West like kind of scoop up uh, Renee Zellweger and they go back and they're having sex and it's to the music and it's like boom, boom, boom. And then the, the shots ring out. It's such a great opening. It's It really is great. And then it feels like the rest of the movie follows that pattern of cutting in and out of the stage show, but to lesser and lesser degrees the entire way through. Well, yeah, I mean, the first thing that we get to catch on about how this musical is going to be made after like the cutting and after the zooming and after the close ups is that in that all that jazz number, you realize right away that the musical number that we're watching is first real. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. Renee Zellweger is actually there watching Catherine Zeta-Jones as Velma. Velma's like performing for real people. But then there's that little switch where all of a sudden you see Renee Zellweger is now imagining herself up there on stage and the musical kind of clicks into fantasy in that we realize that this movie, pretty much all the musical numbers that we see are going to take place inside of Renee Zellweger's head as like a stage struck person who's really obsessed with being in the theater, who is imagining herself as the star and kind of recasting everybody in her life as performers, which is not how the musical goes. You know, on stage, but it was really the big idea that Rob Marshall came up with to the producers that got him hired. You know, they'd been through a couple directors. It wasn't really working out. And then it was supposed to be Nicholas Hinter, right? Because Nicholas Hinter had Charlize Theron as Roxy. Uh, I know that. Yeah. And and then they made her re-audition and then she lost the role to Zellweger. Which is yeah. interesting as well. Um, and there was an earlier version, I think, even before that, that might have had like Madonna, maybe. Oh, wow. They, they, they were casting around trying to figure out how they wanted it to be. Um, I mean, the, this movie could have been so many things because I just need to mention that right at the top. And we'll talk about 
all these casting choices. But first of all, just to call back to last week, uh, Travolta was definitely in line to play the lawyer, you know, uh, and he didn't want to do it. And that went to Richard Gere. But the true. He didn't. Do you know why he didn't want to do it? Why? He didn't want to do it because here, I'll just read his quote. He said, and he's saying this with regret years later. He's saying, you know, I didn't explore enough Chicago. He said, Harvey Weinstein offered it to me three times, uh, but I never met with the director because I thought the play was about a bunch of women who hated men. And I like women who like men. But now he's realized that he, since he already has the two biggest musicals in history, it would have been fun to have the top three. When he said that, he meant Grease and Hairspray. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, this is interesting. I mean... I will say that there's so there's so many interesting I'm really kind of fascinated by the gut choices of Rob Marshall versus the ones who got the part. I think Richard Gere is perfect for this. I really do think he does an amazing job in that role. Uh, He's exactly what you want. I don't think that Travolta is that guy. But Rob Marshall did want. Do you know this? Who I'm going to say right now? Go on. Who he wanted his first choice to be the, the lawyer. Who? Michael Jackson. Oh, wow. He wanted Michael Jackson. And Harvey Weinstein was like, no. He was like, no. He was like, Michael Jackson would take attention away from Catherine Zeta-Jones and Rosanna Zellweger. By the way, they had a whole thing, too. So much so that they had to, like, they argued over who got top billing in the in the movie. So I think it's one of the only movie posters that has diagonal uh, lettering. So if you look at it, it looks like from the angle that you look at it, it could be Renee Zellweger's name is on top or Catherine Zeta-Jones's name is on top. Like there is a lot. There's a lot there. But it's I mean, like there's one so of many those, like holograms that you can flip back and forth. Yeah, I mean, there it is. Or look into it and a whale pops out. I mean, yeah, but like all over the board. And, and obviously it's one of those prestige pictures, you know, where it's like Kathy Bates was going to be, uh, you know, the part that Queen Latifah played. And I think Queen Latifah does a great job. I mean, again, all the casting is great. And I almost feel like the casting ended in the right spot. Well, Harvey Weinstein wanted to find a role for Britney Spears. That was his idea. I was going to bring that one up too. <laughs> yeah. I mean, everyone I mean, in the world auditioned for this. Like, because it, it felt like it was coming in. This is one of those things. I think this is like what, and I'm not, obviously, we know Harvey Weinstein's a straight up criminal. There's nothing to be said about that. Uh, but I think what he was really good at was creating uh, a fervor in the town about what a project could be. And he, when you look at the who could have been in this movie, it is literally everybody. Like, it's everyone. Everyone who is still famous to today. Audition went through, was close, couldn't do it. Scheduling conflicts. It is bananas. This is, ugh, and I can't wait to stop saying his name this episode, but this is like Harvey Weinstein when the town thought he had the most power. You know, at, he the, did. at this Oscar ceremony, you know, of the five Best Picture nominees, he had a hand in producing four of them. Chicago, The Hours, Gangs of New York, and Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, which he had producer credits on. Four out of five was a Weinstein joint, and he seemed like the guy. Yeah, and... And, you know, and I think this is a big swing because also this is the first Rob Marshall film. Like Rob Marshall, this is his first breakthrough into directing. It's a giant picture, but he is someone who was nominated for Best Choreography at the Tonys. 
for Kiss of the Spider Woman, Damn Yankees, She Loves Me, and this is what I want to talk about, Cabaret. Because this feels, to me, when I look at this movie, I'm like, well, Cabaret did this so much better. I mean, Cabaret, the one that we saw with Liza Minnelli, is kind of what you're talking about, like this mix between someone who wants to be on stage, what's going on. Like there's, there's a mix of stage and personal and we're in and we're out. And there's something there that I feel like this movie is trying to be, but never quite achieves it. Cause it still feels to me very much like I'm watching people put on costumes and perform guys and dolls. Like there's an energy to this and like Bugsy Malone that I think is similar. It just feels like dress up. And I, I don't mind that. I don't mind that when I see a Broadway musical, I feel like that's part of it, but this feels like it doesn't feel grounded like a movie should, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, it wants to be cabaret, right? You know, like, it too is a Bob Fosse joint. Like, it too has songs by Candor and Ebb. But what it doesn't have, I would say, is a character who kind of controls your heart and your attention as much as Liza Minnelli's Sally Bowles does. You know, Sally wants to be a performer just like Renee does, just like Velma does. But there's something about Sally Bowles and like her complexity and her vulnerability and the way she gets herself in trouble and the way you also love her, even Mm -hmm. though you're like, oh, you're bad for everybody you meet and maybe a little bit toxic. And yet, like, I'm rooting for you. She had that grit. You know, that is a character that you care about. And Chicago's trying to do something different. It's like, here are some characters you think are hilarious and nasty and charismatic, but you don't care about them as much because they're just sort of like nasty and charismatic from the beginning. They don't have that vulnerability to me that Sally Bowles does. And it means as much as I admire the performances, I'm not as emotionally invested in this movie. Well, here's what I'll say about this movie that I think is ahead of its time. This is reality TV culture, right? This is, and obviously it was written way before we had reality television, but I think this plays into it was right a when lot it was starting, right? Like Survivor is right. coming out right now. Right. But I think what this foreshadows in many respects is the way that we treat reality television and, and reality television stars. And it's funny to me that Chicago has become the Broadway musical of Chicago has become a bastion for simply that. Come through, come and do your thing. Uh here, it, it, like it is it's very interesting to me that this this type of a character being presented is very relatable, I think, now even more than it was in 20, 2002. That's how people call it now, 2002. I hear that. I mean, I think that in terms of timing, this is perfect, right? Because 2002, you're really in this moment of like celebrity bad behavior, celebrity trials. You know, you've just survived the 90s and you've just survived like O.J. Simpson, you know, mm-hmm. the idea of a trial that like captures the public's entire imagination And you're at the dawn of, to me, like the worst part of like female treatment that we had in in pop culture, where you have all of these starlets who are in trouble for being bad constantly. You know, the Tara Reid of it all, the Britney Spears, like we've talked about, you know, this like idea of we want to worship these girls and think that they're horrible at the same time and make fun of them. And like the meanness and reverence is exactly what I think Chicago kind of captures. This idea right. of being the celebrity that everybody loves to hate. And it it feels very of that time to me. You know, it does. It feels yeah. right for that moment, which is maybe why it feels so it feels harsher today to me. Well, you know, maybe you're right, because it seems outlandish 
and where this is something where we're like, yeah, we've seen the people who've had, you know, a million kids and we've seen the uh, reality stars who have cheated families and defrauded people out of, you know, their, their money because of accidents. We've seen, we've seen this. So it is exhausting or we have less sympathy. Now this comes out, you know, Chicago, the play comes out in 1975. And I, and I wonder, you know, what it's, what it's kind of responding to in the early seventies Cause it is an interesting idea. Like what is, what's going on in the seventies here? Like that, that I think makes this something that it's responding to, or is it not responding to anything? Well, I don't know. I mean, let's jump back, back to the, to the twenties actually first okay. and really get into it. So like in the 1920s, what's happening with Maureen Watkins is that she's a reporter in Chicago. She's actually only a reporter in Chicago for eight months but she happens mm-hmm. to be doing it at the height of these two real life kind of jazz baby murderers. There was a girl named Beulah Anon and there was a girl named Belva Gardner. And they actually pair up really well with uh, Roxy Hart and Velma Kelly. They actually basically are. Like Beulah was kind of known as like the beauty of the cell block. And Belva was known as like the most stylish of murderesses row. And Belva mm-hmm. had actually like been a cabaret singer who actually like did kill her husband. And it was the same thing with Beulah. Like she killed her um, boyfriend, almost the exact same setup as the Roxy Hart case. She had a husband. She was cheating on her husband. She killed her boyfriend. And they both were arrested in Chicago. And it was turned into like this major, major, major crime story. And so she wrote this play about them after she quit being a reporter shortly after. And basically it was just like, yeah, this is what happened. These are these women. This is like the whole chaos I saw as a crime reporter, all of the ways that I feel like we were lied to and manipulated this like kind of snapshot of like, you know, jazz culture, like women who were into dancing and booze. It was an of the moment story that then became a silent film, like produced by Cecil B. DeMille in like 1927. So this was like huge and known. And then Ginger Rogers wound up doing a version of it like 15 years later or so, like in 1942, and that was just called Roxy Hart. And it's a similar kind of story where like Roxy Hart is basically like in jail for a crime that her husband did. It's like a reversal. Her husband did okay. it. She's there taking the fall because she believes that she won't get um, the death penalty, that like her husband would get killed but uh, because she's like a cute, charming girl, you know, right. she's fine. And so you have, you know, little bits of her like Ginger Rogers kind of learning to play with the media, like in this song. Yeah, what about that black bottom? Well. You're good at it, ain't you? I ain't had no complaints yet. How about a little sample? Now? Sure, why not? Sure, Roxy. Come on, be a spoon. Give, Roxy. Boy. <laughs> oh, you're really the nuttiest guy I ever saw. Why don't you, Mrs. Hart? It might take your thoughts off your tragedy. Do a few steps for us. You don't think it might be what you call out of place? Certainly not. You think we'd ask you if it would be? Well. I don't know if I ought. This movie, by the way, even though it's like called Roxy Hart and there's not so much of like a Velma 
Kelly like role, not nearly to the extent of like Catherine Zeta Jones is. Right. It does get into kind of like the cat fight energy. Like literally, there's literally a fight um, where Ginger Rogers is fighting, and all you hear is like the sound of cats. Mrs. Hart, you're a very ordinary bum, and you might as well face it. Oh, I'll bum you. Children. You girls have got to stop the squabbling. Marine was like right there as all of these crazy things are like taking center place. This idea of like people wanting to hear the song that like Renee Zellweger was listening to when she shot her boyfriend, which, you know, is a thing that like Renee Zellweger even mentions like in the movie Mm -hmm. right here. Sweetest little jazz killer ever to hit Chicago. That's the England after. You make an announcement, we're going to have an auction. Tell them we got to raise some money for her defense. They'll buy everything she's ever touched. Everything. Your shoes, your dresses, your perfume, your underwear. Mm, Victrola records. Like the one I was playing when I shot the bastard. I didn't hear that. Not that I didn't have grounds, mind you. That comes from like a... When I shot the bastard. I didn't hear that. Not that I didn't have grounds, mind you. That comes from like a real life detail. You know, like everybody knew the song that Beulah was listening to when she shot her boyfriend. It was like a song called Hula Lou and it went like this. But if you want to know about women, you've got to talk to a sailor man. I don't know how many I have met, and there isn't any that I regret. But the lady who gave me a trim is a gal I can't forget. So yeah, basically this is a story of a film that was like a real life case that has then become a metaphor for like us in the media. It's kind of distanced itself from even realizing that it's about real people. And it has just become about the relationship between us and the media and crime. And so, yeah, Bob Fosse wanted to do something kind of like a little bit nastier, a little bit meaner. Um, He couldn't get the rights to Chicago for a long time. But when she died, when um, Maureen died, he was able to buy the rights from the bank that then owned all of her property. So it was kind of a timing thing. Um, why he brought it back up. Yeah. It's like he finally just had the rights. So it's interesting. So in a way, this is just a true story that now we are living in a culture where this is the norm. So in 75, it's more of like, oh, this is an interesting story about something that happened back in the day. And now we are looking at it. And I think probably in 2002, it probably felt more like that. Like, oh, we're looking back at something. This is like a fun retelling of this scandalous time. And now it just feels like we live in this scandalous time. Or at least the way that's the way I felt about it. Or it means that we've always lived in a scandalous time. You know, like that we shouldn't get grease nostalgic and think that everything was like magical and charming. No, I, you know, you're totally right. Like we live in this world of like, I'm going to call it like bad celebrity, right? It's celebrity where the person who is is being celebrated isn't being celebrated for any artistic merit they are being celebrated for 
you know, some, I mean, you have it, like you said, like OJ is one version of it. Uh, I think when Kim Kardashian first came out with the sex tape with Ray J, there was like that element of it. I think she and the Kardashians themselves have, you know, I think the the, the normal dig on them is like, well, what do they do? They don't do anything. They do a lot. Uh, but when they first started, there was, it, it seemingly was no there there, right? Like, what, why are these people famous? It's the Paris Hilton going on, you know, uh, the simple life for the real life where she works on a farm or whatever it is. It, like, there's this idea of we were supporting celebrities that seemingly had no talent, but yet to be, uh, you know, lightning rods for publicity. And, and this movie shows that as well. It's like, you know, I, I was pregnant. Here we go. And then everyone, they're, they're all jockeying to, you know, get on top of each other and keep this moment in the limelight. Because as we all know, it's the most fleeting type of fame when you get that type of fame, which is sort of, because there's nothing to fall back on. The minute you stop to become in, you stop being interesting, you're forgotten about, and then the next person comes up. Right. You just wind up doing celebrity boxing, and people yeah. are like, "Oh yeah, that guy." Right. Yeah. And then, and then when you die, the most famous person that you work with will be like, "Yeah, I always loved uh, Stephen. You know, Stephen was a magical guy. I never worked with him after that one time, but I, I always had a life force that was so special to me. And I, oh wow, I didn't miss him. Yeah, I was like, yeah, but you never worked with him, so it's all bullshit. Uh, I mean, yeah. if anything, we're living in kind of a weird version right now where our celebrities who are famous for no reason are on Instagram, and they're like even TikTok. less famous. Yeah, and yeah. what they're kind of famous for is like, here's, maybe this is just my Instagram, is like, here's some like healthy salad recipes or like, here's a good way to clean your house. It's like, I, I find our kind of TikTok, Instagram, maybe my TikTok, now, now that I'm saying it loud, I'm like, oh God, do I just have the most boring Instagram ads come up to me? Like, here's how to like clean a bathroom. But I'm like fascinated by this idea of like squeaky clean, um, aspirational celebrity. Like, hi, I'm just a girl who knows how to tie a scarf. Don't you want to be like me? But now that there's so many famous people, I feel like nobody's famous. Who cares? Well, look, I, I always get upset with people when they go, oh, well, TikTok stars, they're not like they're not doing anything. And the truth is they are. They're entertaining people. It's the same way I feel about when you say like, oh, I don't like Larry the Cable Guy. It's like, well, you know what? Larry the Cable Guy is selling out giant arenas. I don't know if that's true right now, but at the height of Larry the Cable Guy's uh success he was and carrot top the same way like they are doing something people are tuning in people are getting the eyeballs on them now whether or not you think it's right or wrong is a whole different thing um but i think you know here it's i don't know it's interesting i mean i think it is talking about this culture this culture of you are famous for who well i think there's a difference right if you're talking about your fit your best salad dressing that's one thing. You're actually adding something to the conversation. If you are just saying, I am the subject of my fame. I am I am the person. My life is your entertainment. That's a different thing. And that's a hard thing for people to parse. But they've sold themselves. Wait, so are you wondering if Roxy Hart would have been fine being a TikTok star? Because like in the 1920s, you really were just like a singer or an actress or a murderess. You didn't have too many other ways to get famous. It's not like you could run for political yeah. office or anything like that. Um, but now Roxy Hart could be like, hey, check it out. I made a salad and everybody'd be fine. And she'd feel seen. 
Yeah. Uh, no, I don't think she would have done the salad. I don't think she would have done the salad. Uh, but I, <laughs> but I do feel like, um, I don't know. I think that she would have had more outlets, right? Like then there's no outlets. And the only way that they got outlets is like through the gossip pages. And we talked about this a lot back in the day with Citizen Kane, like the idea that, you know, Orson Welles brought the uh, reporters to set to get good gossip, right? The, go- the gossip needed to change the story about what Citizen Kane was. So I think there was just this idea of like, how do you get famous? So, you know, TikTok was the gossip columnist of the time. How can you be seen? Who are you seen with? What did you do? What What are you leaking to them? You know, when are you going out? What do you, you know, it's... it. There are some interesting parallels. I, I don't, I think that, not to overanalyze Roxy Hart, I think that she was going to get famous any which way she can. And you see it at the end where she partners up with her enemy. She's like, you know what? The only way we're going to get really famous, even though we hate each other, and because uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones says it the best, and I'm going to miss uh, say it, but I'll say it now, <laughs> which is just like, look, there's only one business in which liking each other doesn't make a difference. And then you cut to them in that that final number, and that's the truth. It's like because the ultimate goal is fame. It's not about friendship. It's it's show business, not show friends, Amy. Oh wow, I've never heard that. Yeah, I know, pretty good one. I should make that a shirt. Um, <laughs> but I mean, let's talk a little bit about this movie though, too, and and what I think works and what I don't think works. I, I think that we talked a lot about la- last week about Greece doing these really heightened musical numbers, where you watch. Um, you know, them work on the car and the whole set turns to white. And it is, in many respects, choreographed like a Broadway number, but they use a lot of things in film to make it uh, feel more cinematic. Where here, the majority of the things that we watch are on stage in this club, and you cut back and forth between half sets and real sets. And I'm not trying to talk about like, well, what's the reality? I'm just like, I don't know if that's truly interesting to me. And I don't know if that conceit of her seeing her life like a nightclub act is as engaging or is that limiting or is that, because it's like, if I imagine anything like, I'm, I don't know, maybe it's just the time that she could own rent then what we're already seeing no, that's true know, because it's not know? like most of the sets feel like sets anyways. Yeah. You know? Or they feel like sets, I guess. I, the it sets feel, yeah, feel that's like exactly sets it feels and the like. sets don't feel like locations. And right. so it when feels you go from more like, one set to another, it's pretty similar. It's a little samey. Well, it just feels to me, and I think this is, I, I said it already, but this idea like it feels like we're watching people so excited to dress up and do things. And and I, I feel like there, there, there's, an, there's a lot of movies like that where it's sort of like, isn't this cool? I'm in my thing. And I think the movies that, there's so many movies that transcend that, um, that are big. You know, you, I can think about like Lord of the Rings. There's no winking at Lord of the Rings. You buy this. And I can think about Dune. And it's like, we're just buying these worlds, even though the costumes are, you know, maybe more extreme or, I don't know. There's, but there's something here where it's like, it's a musical. We all love musicals. Like, I feel like there's like a cheesy factor to like the Broadway musical where people are like, oh my God, I get to be in a Broadway musical. I'm going to really cheese it up now. Um, I don't know. Do you buy that at all? Like, cause there's like, there's a phone, a fakiness to it, but the actors are great and they're doing a great job, but it doesn't feel like they're, I don't know. It just feels like they're 
they're doing the broad, I guess there's a difference between acting on Broadway stage and acting in film. And I feel like I'm watching film actors acting on a Broadway stage in a film. Yeah. Whereas like the guy from Evan Hansen is a Broadway actor acting like a Broadway actor in a normal film next to only film actors, which is why he seems so weird. And I can't speak to that because I haven't seen it, but I, that that doesn't sound <laughs> ridiculous. Well, I, I have to give a shout out to my best friend, Eva Faye, who dressed like Dear Evan Hansen for Halloween and really just killed it and terrified people the entire time. <laughs> but um, but yeah, like this. By the way, did I tell you my theory on Evan Hansen? I'll just say it here because we probably will never talk about it again. Uh, Dear Evan Hansen is a Curb episode. <laughs> Dear Evan Hansen is like just a-, a Larry David Curb episode with music. It, like he is trying to give, it gets caught with something, gets caught in a big lie. It, that is, if you made, they should do a, they should do a curb that is the exact same plot of Dear Evan Hansen. I think what you're saying is that Dear Evan Hansen is like an origin story of how he became Larry David. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a prequel of how I became like, I buy it. somehow popular and also full of bile. <laughs> I say that of the character, not the man. I do find this limitation of Roxy Hart only able to imagine songs as being performed on a stage really constricting to the movie because, you know, what we've looked at so far, especially with Grease, is the idea of musicals as a way of like bringing the fantastical to your reality. Like I have this big emotion and the only way that I can process it is by like stepping into this like gigantic, beautiful, otherworldly world and maybe even here on my high school track team, Bleachers, everybody's going to start singing with me because we're all so swept up. And there's mm-hmm. that audience buy-in of fantasy that I find so beautiful that you're just going to go with it. Like, yeah, these T-birds are all going to leap on the car. It's great, man. I, I'm, I, I believe in what they feel so much you, that I am with you. You are totally right. Because I, I think you could say to me exactly what I said last week. What I like about Greece is that I feel like I am watching 30-year-old actors act like they're teenagers. And I don't care. And I feel like they're having fun. But I also feel like there, there is like... um a competentness in the direction and tone that makes it feel all grounded. Not, not to say, because Rob Marshall is a, is a great director. I'm just saying it, there's something about, well, honestly, I think I have issues with this and some of his other musicals too. It's like, there is something about capturing, there's something about the direction of the pieces, the way the performances, and yet there are these real moments too. I don't know. I don't well, know. I, I, I think yeah. I think that Chicago cheats us of the chance to feel transported. Okay. Yeah. Of to know yeah. that we're being transported to like a fantastical place. Because it's transporting us from like a kind of false looking set to just another stage over and over again. It, in that way, it almost feels like a musical made not just for people who love the musical Chicago, but also people who hate musicals. Because it's just like almost defensive about what a musical is. It's like, oh, you hate musicals. You don't like it when people start to sing out of nowhere. Well, fine. She's going to sing, but it'll be on stage. And because it's like on a stage and she's picturing herself on stage, maybe you're more willing to go with us to the place of where this song is. And I think that's a mistake. I think a musical needs to dream bigger than that. But you see, here is my issue with this. I believe that if you don't like a musical and you watch us, you're like, I fucking hate musicals. Whereas if you don't like a musical and you see Hedwig, you're like, oh, I like a musical. But, you know, I'd even talk about a movie like Little Shop of Horrors. Like the, that's another one where people seem like they're having fun. Like I think you have to have, 
maybe this is like the line, which is like, there has to be fun in a musical, right? Because you're breaking this reality. And, and I think that even looking at La La Land, like there is a joy to it. Like there is, the whole thing has to have a good joy and a love of performing. And, and I think it can be bigger because you have to, you have to be bigger. But this, I feel like doesn't, if you don't like musicals, I don't know if it's giving you that much to hold on to outside of it. Well, right. I agree with you, but I also yeah. still think that that's why they did it. It's just a bad right. idea. Right, you know? right. Like if you don't like it in a musical, when a person suddenly starts to sing and everybody dances behind him, cause you're like a flat thinker and you're like, that wouldn't happen in reality. This is lame. And I refuse to go there with you. Chicago right. gets around that by being like, it's her imagination. It's on stage. It's totally fine. Right, you know, they're like working right, with the cinema right. sins of it all, but you but don't I care also, because yeah. the transporting is what, is what makes it work. So I feel and, like and I, it's yeah. like training wheels that kind of ruin the movie. There's something off in the alchemy of this, but I also believe that it looks cool. The choreography is amazing. The songs are great. And the casting is amazing. These are all great actors, all doing a great job. No one is phoning it in. But I feel like the overall piece might be doing a disservice to everyone. But I can also see why this wins all the awards. Because when you think about a musical, it's the most clear version of what you want. It gets the oldies, it like, you know, people, and it also attracts like young people because it's got a cool cast. It's like, it's, it's very much straight down the center. It's like, there's nothing, there's nothing ridiculously interesting about it because I, I would also argue that this feels very much influenced by the stage play. That's why I also have an issue with it. It's like, well, you just are taking what the stage play kind of did when they reinvented it. Like I once saw, I saw a, a pared down version of Sweeney Todd that was amazing. And it was just like, I feel like was all it the in actors. New York? Yes. All did the they, actors played their own instruments. Did they feed you something? Did they feed you no, a pot? No, no, no. Oh, it I was um, with like Patti LuPone. And I feel like the cast was like eight people and they all played their own instruments and there was no real sets. It was just like this bare bones version of it. And I never had seen Sweeney Todd and it really like made the music shine. And it was like, it, it was just a very interesting staging. And I think it feels to me like we're cheating. We're cheating. Cause the staging was already there. The staging was already, that was kind of the staging of it. Even that wasn't unique to it. And maybe, maybe I'm biased because if I saw it on Broadway and I did, it's like, I read the book. So I'm, I'm, I'm mad at the movie. Like the most cliche thing you could say, like, well, not everyone saw the Broadway musical, although probably by now they have, um, if you want to, uh, yes, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'm bringing that into it too. I can see that. I mean, I think to me, like, this is a giant production that I agree with you is, is like well done in the performances. I think Renee Zellweger is really great. I think Catherine Zeta-Jones is like unbelievable. I like how they have different ways of moving. You know, Renee being so sort of like frenetic, bouncy, bubbly, tiny, and Catherine having like this kind of stillness to her, this like very like Sid Charisse way of just like walking and assuming everybody will be looking at her because stillness to her, this like very like Sid Charisse way of just like walking and assuming everybody will be looking at her because she's so commanding. Mm -hmm. I think they're terrific. So everything I'm going to say that sounds mean about this movie is not at all directed towards them. But I do think that this is a movie where like the phasers were set to stun and entertain, yes. entertain primarily and not set to, you know, transport. 
And I, I like right. transporting. Transporting is really the thing that I'm going for with a musical. It's so it's like, wow, we're kicking, we're shimmying, we got spangles, but it doesn't feel to me true to the spirit of living with a musical as it's happening around me. It doesn't, mm. it doesn't feel like this movie trusts me. And I, I get really turned off when I feel like a movie doesn't trust the audience. And I don't feel like this movie does. Let's talk a little bit about the performances in this as well, because I think we've we've really like kind of stabbed at the heart of it as far as like tonally and and all that. Um, do you think that Renee Zellweger is uh, a good choice as as this character as Roxy Hart? I do. I mean, I've always had a soft spot for Renee Zellweger. I think there's something in her face that has a toughness. You know, she's somehow both like adorable and you believe that she will do anything she needs to do to get something done. You know, she manages to kind of be like a a peach with like a titanium pit. I don't know how to explain it better than that. But that's what Roxy Hart, I think, is. You know, where I think the movie kind of does her performance dirty is I don't feel like I personally ever get to really care about Roxy Hart. You know, there's a little bit at the beginning when she's in that kind of bad relationship with Dominic West and her face just seems like, heartbroken, you know, when she's like realizing that this guy isn't going to help her at all. And then from then on, you kind of care about her a little bit less and less, you know, because it's a story about how she decides to like use and then get used by the media. And it just kind of keeps repeating it over and over again. You know, that like, yeah, the media is crazy. Did you know that? The media is crazy and uh, you can command attention. Won't last. And that's really all it just kind of does on repeat. And it doesn't to me feel like a story about Roxy. It feels like a story about this idea. Well, and the idea be... doesn't go anywhere. So then I feel kind of empty. Well, let me pitch this out to you. I, I agree that I think she's actually very well cast. And I look at some of the names on that list that were up for that part. And I think that... Now, please take this with a grain of salt. Because I, I'm just trying to say there's something about Renee Zellweger... She is beautiful. She is talented. Um, does an amazing job in this. But it's not like a traditional beauty. Like if, if it was someone that was a, a little bit more your typical leading woman, I think it would be a little bit harder to believe that she's got no, like you believe the frumpiness of her. Like I think that that's one of the things that I really like about this. And the uh, I, I'm always nervous to be like, I'm talking about looks, but I think it's about the idea of you have to buy that she's not as good as Catherine Zeta-Jones. Like that Catherine Zeta-Jones is is the what people strive to be. She can't just be equal to her because she probably would go up in the thing. Like you have to buy that it would be impossible for her to ever get there. And like I think Dominic West sets it up really nicely. And if she was... You know, it's like that thing that sometimes movies do. It's like, you're so ugly. You're so nerdy. It's like, no, she's not. She has her hair up in a ponytail. Not to say Renee Zellweger is not any of these things, but I think it it was a nice contrast. And I think that was actually really smart in the way that they cast this, especially when I looked at some of the other names that were up for it, where it felt like you don't want two, you don't want two Velmas. You need to have some difference there, even in height and look. And, you know, like, I think you need Roxy to be a little bit more of a, an underdog in a way. Yeah, for sure. Like an underdog who it seems to be a pretty good actress. Like when she's on the yes. stage, she's terrific, you know? But right. yeah, maybe she doesn't have like the Velma look. I do I feel like, I mean, yeah. my one quote with Renee, and I hate even saying this out loud, 
because I feel like Renee Zellweger's body has been examined and judged way yes, too much. Yes, and, yeah, and, and that's too what, much. And, and it that's makes what me I'm really going uncomfortable. For, yeah. But her body is muscular in a way that like bodies of that time weren't. And it's that always throws me off. But also, who cares? Do I care? I probably shouldn't care. I shouldn't care because also everybody's wearing like leather underwear, which definitely people were not wearing back then. So, <laughs> well, and, and you know, to your point before I went off on my little Zellweger versus Catherine Zeta Jones tangent, I will say that what I think you're speaking about is a character flaw in the music, which is this idea that Rob Marshall put forward is this is her version of events as told to music because she's so into the theater that she is literally seeing her life as a cabaret or a stage show or a speakeasy show. But because she's seeing that that way, it doesn't really give her a chance to articulate how she feels, right? It's like it's not opening her up to her own inner monologue. And I think one of the things I love about musicals is you get the inner monologue of someone, at least what they're thinking. We see what she's thinking about other people, but I never feel like there's an introspective version of her in this as much as other musicals that are written. The music is written to do that. And here by changing the conception of it, that it is in her mind, you, they're not changing the music. So you don't get that like, inter, like you don't get that like, um, deconstruction of herself no that's true like you're right she's never revealing herself she's always performing herself which is a difference like that most vulnerable scene she sort of has is when she's up there giving that monologue you know about like how her husband was bad and bad you like that kind of stand-up scene that she does but that's all very much a performance like that scene is done in a way where you're supposed to hear like her pauses for comedy like her effects like the what she's waiting for from the audience that she knows that she right. is doing this for them and not for herself or not for the audience yeah and by the way i have to say that i love john c riley i think john c riley is just you know i is so good in whatever he does and his role as uh her husband in this is really like this is kind of earlier John C. Riley too. I mean, not that he's gotten anything but, you know, better and better, but there's a sweetness to him. Like it's that Boogie Nights uh, version of him where it's like, it's such a dopey, sad sack and he's so good and he's so musically interesting to listen to. I think that also, just to say that too, these actors do a great job singing. Like they do a great, I mean, that... That's the hard thing to parse because it's like I think that people don't judge a musical on much more than did they sing good? Did they dance good? Are the songs good? That's it. Like, that's all you really care about. Well, that's my least favorite way of judging a musical, because like we said, I like it when the voices are a little bit cracky and I like it when they don't dance perfectly because I like the expression of their emotional life, which, as you're pointing out, is like what's missing here. Yeah. Yeah. To like the John C. Riley of it all, like. This comes at a really interesting pivot for him, you know, because up until this point, John C. Riley has just been the drama guy. You know, he's in these great movies where maybe he can be a little bit funny, but he hasn't become like, I hang out all the time with Will Ferrell, John C. Riley. You know, I think that John C. Riley is a really special actor because he's so good at comedy and drama, like absolutely convincingly. But he hadn't gotten to reveal that side of himself yet. Also, I mean, he's having like a crazy year because of those like top five best picture nominees at the Oscars, he's in like three of them. He's in this, he's in the hours 
And he's also in Gangs of New York. So this is like a John C. Riley moment, but we're still getting the full reveal of the John C. Riley. And yet, like his big number, his Mr. Cellophane number, you know, the one where he's like alone in the office with Richard Gere, her lawyer, trying to figure out if his wife is pregnant with his baby and feeling really invisible. You know, this beautiful number here where he's kind of done up like a clown. should I bend my name, Mr. Cellophane, because you can look right through me, walk right by me. I never know I'm there. I, I mean, that breaks the entire conceit of the show, though, right? Because absolutely, is Roxy imagining that? Well, that's like, what I'm saying. It like it's it it it's like to me. I feel like it's a good pitch that you have to then fight with what is actually written because they're not rewriting songs. They're just doing the songs from the musical. It was like, oh, and then we rewrote these new songs, like like. I, you know, Cats is epic, but they wrote new pieces for that uh, film version. And I think they tried to do some different things with it. Not that that worked, but um, just take it. Just you just lifted something, but you lifted it, but you changed the direction of it. It's hard to do. That's a hard it's a hard thing to if you're not going to. It's like rewriting the first and last chapter, and then you have to be like, uh, well, I think it will make sense. And if it doesn't, don't worry, uh, well, don't worry about it, because it, it's too much to change it. It is too much to change it. Yeah, it is. And I think it really, as a conceit, like I'm empathetic to it. I mean, the idea that every number they are performing is happening in the head of somebody who can't, you know, live out their dreams in real life. That is the setup of Pennies from Heaven, my favorite movie of all time. Uh, it's also kind of the setup of, of Synecdoche, New York, also my favorite movie of all time. And yet when you kind of retrofit it to Chicago, it means you have to do things like, well, there's a there's a number called class, you know, that's between Catherine Zeta-Jones and Queen Latifah that takes place in the musical, like around the time when um, they're feeling betrayed that Roxy like stole her moves for the trial, you know, stole the scarf, yeah. stole the water, stole the fainting. And that's one of the better numbers in the show. You know, it's like really funny. It's a number that's all about like the hypocrisy of them, like singing about how the world doesn't have class while using like the foulest language on the planet. I mean, here it is. Every guy is a snot. Every girl is a twat. Holy shit. Holy shit. What a shame. What a shame. What became of And yet, like Rob Marshall explained on the DVD that he had to cut that number because it like was dishonest to our concept is the phrase he used. But like, then maybe the concept is bad because like, sure, it's dishonest and that like Roxy's not imagining them singing that, but he filmed that, he filmed that scene and then had to take it out. And I don't think that this Rodney, Roxy's imagination conceit is interesting enough that it means we should lose that song. And also, I like that Chicago is a lot about hypocrisy. You know, that number that Richard Gere has at the beginning, you know, that all he cares about is love. You know, he's like singing that love is what matters to him, blah, 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 that he would take any any case because of love. And yet while he's singing that, you know, the movie is telling us something radically different. The movie is being like, no, look, he's getting fitted for a suit right now. He's wearing furs. He's in this fancy car. All of the words he's telling you are completely a lie. And he's just making that up. I don't care about expensive things. Cashmere coats, diamond rings don't mean a thing. 
All I care about is love That's what I'm here for I don't care for wearing silk cravats Ruby studs, satin spats Don't mean a thing All I care about is love To be honest, that doesn't fit with me either because like, I guess that's also supposed to be Renee Zellweger's imagination of her lawyer, but she doesn't know yet that he's a hypocrite. So like, I mean, we know that she doesn't know that he's a hypocrite because she kind of offers him love in exchange for money and gets shot down after this number. So I don't understand how she's hallucinating a song that gets to the truth of him, but is also something she doesn't know yet. And what right. I'm saying is I think this is a really, a really fatal mistake. I just, I don't think they should have done it. Yeah. I, you know, like, and I think that with a good movie, things fly by. I always say this about like, you know, we, James Bond or Fast and Furious or any kind of big popcorn movie. There is a suspension of disbelief where things are happening so quickly that you and and things are said with such power that you just uh, buy it and you don't question it. And then maybe later on you you think about it and go, wait, that makes no sense whatsoever. But it didn't impede my enjoyment of the film. And I think you can get away with like a, a fast move like that. You can kind of be like, oh, fuck it. Who cares? And you just drive forward. Right? But I think with this. It does. I mean, look, it clearly didn't affect the movie because it won all the awards. Now, whether that's Harvey or whether that's this appealed to an older crowd, whatever the the thing is, it it worked. But I do think in rewatching it and looking at it years later, these things actually stand out as being uh, more of an issue because we've seen people do this better and 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 kind of walk both lines of it and, and do both sides of it. Yeah. And I think you wouldn't have so much time as you're watching the movie to dwell on it if the scenes where Roxy went in her imagination looked more different and were more yeah. visually interesting. But because it's all just like, oh, here comes the red light again and there's the stage again. And then here's the people in the audience who are like not moving for some reason. Like I haven't yeah. quite analyzed why the audiences don't react to like half the numbers, but then do react to other numbers. Like, is it that she doesn't care about the audience? So they're not humans to her. Is it that the audience is displeased? I really fundamentally do not understand the choice of like having some people be mannequins basically and other people yeah. be like cheering. But yeah, I, we, we, I have time to dwell on this because he's just going to the same place over and over again. I mean, I have time to dwell on like, okay, so for inside Roxy's imagination, does that mean Roxy is like kind of a perv who's really into black lingerie? Since every time she starts imagining like right, the girls on her she cell block, herself. she's like, yeah, she's like all these girls on my cell block. They are sexy, like cool. But also, how does she know about black leather lingerie? Like, I don't know. See, I hate that I'm becoming this person. Like I'm becoming the nitpicker that they were trying to make me not be by having it all set on a stage. Like, give me fantasy, and then I won't try to tear apart your reality. Right. I, I mean, look, I, I think that it's it, it's so hard. We're looking at this movie, and, and I think what I like about this is you and I sort of had a reservation about this movie when we first agreed to do it, right? And that reservation simply was, huh, is this good? Do we truly believe that this should be sent up to space? And I think before we even did this episode, we had our 
opinions about it. Now, I've also said that we've done this show and I've rewatched something and been like, oh my God, this is better than I thought, or this is worse, you know, but I think here we both came in knowing, I I think this has an issue to it. And we even talked last night, I said, you know, maybe we should watch Moulin Rouge instead. But I do think that this is an interesting film because it stands out from the other ones. And I think in talking about musicals, it's worthwhile to talk about what doesn't work, even though it is perceived as maybe one of the best musicals of all time. Singing in the Rain, Grease. I mean, I would put Singing in the Rain as, I wouldn't put Hairspray as one of the top three. I, I think, where, I mean, I would almost say like Wizard of Oz, Singing in the Rain, Grease. Maybe, are those the top three musicals of all time? Non live, I mean, live action ones. Possibly. I mean, it's hard to think of heavier hitters. I hate that the 2007 Hairspray made more money than the original because I just, I I hate that movie. <laughs> Sorry, Travolta. Uh, as much as I love Travolta in Greece, I hate that movie. Well, yeah, I mean, all right. So there, I mean, uh, that's a whole other conversation, but I do think that there are ways to do a musical and, and I think there are ways to make, look, we've talked about Cabaret, a musical about stage. We've talked about Moulin Rouge, which is a musical about being on stage. You know, we haven't talked about it in depth, but, you know, all that jazz. We talked with Tom Sharpling about that. You know, there are a lot of musicals that are that involve that are meta. Uh, I'm in a musical. Did you know this that takes place on stage? What? No. Yeah. Uh, I'm in a musical called uh, Opening Night. And so Opening Night is a movie I just realized this as I'm talking to you. I did not have this as a talking point. It is about um, the cast and crew who are backstage at a, uh, like one of those like jukebox musicals. Like it's like an eighties, like it's called one hit wonder. And it's all like these one hit wonders. And it's all about the goings on. It's like Anne Heche is in it. And uh, Tay Diggs is in it. Uh, And uh, it's, you know, it was really interesting to see like, uh, and J.C. Chazet plays like the star of the musical because it's like one hit wonders. But it was interesting. I mean, it's a deconstruction of something. It's like we we know that musicals are hard for you to buy into. So we're going to do it with puppets. We know we, musicals are hard to do. So we're going to do it like this. But I often find those are the ones that are. I don't know. I, I still have a lot of respect for the ones that just do it, like the Hamiltons, the Book of Mormon, like Book of Mormon is a straight up musical that is incredibly funny and and subversive but it is doing what a musical does it doesn't like break down everything to be like okay it's okay like it like it's almost like we're apologizing for it or we're showing you some other version of it i don't know yeah I mean, I have all nothing against a medical meta musical at all. I like a meta. I don't. Musical. Yeah, I like I, I mean, like a meta musical too. I just think that like we exist in that world so yeah. much there, or that's like a very. I guess that's a very, we've seen the meta musical done better. I guess that's, that was my point of this. Yeah. I didn't mean to talk about my own movie that I but have. Do, but do you uh, sing yeah. in it? I don't sing. Oh, God, no. I, oh, I, uh, I wish you saw. No, no one wants to hear that. I want to um, hear it. I want to hear it right now. No, no. <laughs> Why? It's terrible. Do, uh, do, do take on me. I could probably, I could probably, I when I first started out, I started doing improv uh, at this place called Chicago City Limits, and we had to do songs in that all the time. Improvised musicals, blues. I got the suggestion, 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 blues. I got a real bad case of the suggestion, <laughs> blues. Oh, yeah. And we had all these, like, musical numbers that were, uh, you know, that we would write about pop culture. 
It's terrible. I mean, it was terrible. It was just, it was something. I think I did a, a number called like Windows 95 to like working nine to five. Oh, I'd like to hear that. Uh, we had one like, it's a mere piece of crap. The mere space station is the Amway of the sky. Like that kind of shit. Like it was all like, uh, you know, like uh, I, I uh, what was the one I had? I had, I wrote one that I feel like I hated, but I had to do it all the time. It was like to Chumba Wumba tub thumping. Uh-huh. And it was about buying those Tickle Me Elmos for Christmas. Like, oh God, I can't remember how that one like, went. I get knocked down, but I get up again because yeah. I have to buy yeah, a Tickle Me yeah, Elmo. Yeah. yeah, it was something about like just like fighting through the crowds at the mall. And, like, <laughs> you got like getting jiggy with it, like all this dumb stuff. And we would always do these like big musical reviews and the, the show would heighten to this year end musical review where everything we did and is a song that was like too uh, whatever, you know, some sort of classic uh, Broadway show tune or something like that and it was like i i was the bane of my existence to write them and to then do them and it was yeah it was it was awful it sounds magical to me mm. <laughs> Hell yeah, yeah. imagine I doing mean, it in front of a bunch of uh prom kids kids who came there after their prom hey guys you want to see us sing some musical songs oh, yeah, no they did not they did not <laughs> want to see that um but there you go uh. Well, now we're in a kinder place for like the comedy musical. I mean, now like even um, my crazy ex-girlfriend has been like yes. paying homage to Chicago while revealing that Chicago is ridiculous. I mean, did you see the episode of, of my crazy ex-girlfriend where they do a version of the cell block tango because she's in jail? And so they kind of flash into the musical world and everybody's wearing like tight underwear over their over their prison jumpsuits, their prison jumpsuits. Oh, and they're funny. so confused that they have this underwear on for no reason. And then she tries to get them to sing about how hot and sexy all of their crime is. But it's just depressing. Ratata! 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 Tell your story. Ratata! Um, okay, fine. My boyfriend had meth in the glove compartment of our car, and I got pulled over for something else, and a cop found it. Ooh, well, did you dump that good-for-nothing drug-planting boyfriend? No, we're still together. I love him. Oh, well, did you at least tell the cops that it was his meth? I mean, I could have turned him in, but my boyfriend and I have a son. I can't risk our child having both parents in jail. It's true. That's a good Story, story, let's hear another story. Story, story, that one was just sad. What does your story say about the patriarchy? We have all got stories cause we did bad. But, you know, I think even the existence of My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which is like a great show that has won tons of awards, can kind of say thank you to Chicago for helping the idea of musicals being popular again, even get greenlit, having even people take a risk on like giving them money. It's like, because the musical was just super dead, like super uncool. Right. So in a way, I'm grateful to Chicago for bringing it back. But it, you know what? I'll say some nice things. I think there are some scenes where where the conceit actually works. You know, I think the marionette song where Roxy is just realizing she's only able to parrot what Richard Gere says. I think yeah. that's great. I like that number a lot. I especially like the way that he kind of 
picks Renee up and tosses her around over her shoulder and she like just lets it happen. She lets herself kind of land a little clumsily. I think that's perfect. Strength that she had none. And yet we both reach for the gun. I also think like the best scene in the movie that I think really captures the the conceit that they're trying to go for is the one where um, the Hungarian woman in their cell block like is executed. And they do that cross cutting between like her walking to the gallows and her performing like her last performance, you know, as a ballerina on stage. Yeah. And to me, that was just beautiful because like the fact that she's dressed up a little bit of like a ballerina, it gets you thinking about how so many of our famous works of art are about women dying. You know, and yeah. at least Chicago is about women killing men, which I don't find to be like feminist or anything, but it's at right. least different than like all of the like grand history books of like musicals and operas about like women getting murdered. But that, you know, that execution scene, I think, is really powerful because it's like it has a point that it's trying to say about, you know, the contrast between how you think the world is going and how you think you're being received and what's actually going to happen to you. It's like the sharpest criticism of the Roxy mindset. And that it gets all that applause in the alternate world is like really chilling. And I'll say, I even like that little bit where the, you know, announcer tries to thread this needle of what's happening. And he announces that that one Velma number is like Velma performing in an act of desperation. Right. That, that to me is like them getting this conceit correct. It's just all the rest of it that I'm like, whatever. I mean, I like some of the images. I like the image of like Renee Zellweger walking on that crowd of men. You know, that whole, that mirror sequence I think is cool. And if it was one of the only stage numbers in this, the idea that every time she says her own name, she sees more of herself in the mirror, this kind of multiplying of her own image. Yeah. And then like walking on the tuxedos and then that little line that like, you know, the, about love and the audience and the relationship between like her and fandom. And the audience loves me, and I love them, and they love me for loving them, and I love them for loving me, and we love each other, and that's because none of us got enough love in our childhoods, and that's showbiz. Oh, that is also fine. It's just like the grand structure of this I find to be like patronizing, insulting, and weird. I think the the tricky thing about this movie is that it is well done if ill-conceived. Yeah. And so you walk away, and what have I been singing all day today? Those numbers from Chicago. I'm not against it. I'm in. You know, so it's sort of like, I go and go, oh, I want to listen to that. I'm going to get in the car today. I'm going to put that on on Spotify. Like, um, So that, I think, is the trick. I think that that's always... You know, you walk away and if you if it connects with you and it will because the songs are great, um, the numbers are amazing. I love, you know, just talking about the number that I love so much. I love the song where Renee Zellweger is the marionette and, you know, and and he is uh, Richard Gere is controlling her. It's like a beautiful number. And I think that, you know, Rob Marshall is an amazing choreographer and I think he stages this really, really well. It looks it looks great. It does. And I, and I do kind of like the the motif that they keep going for with the lighting where they kind of use the idea of a spotlight and a police flashlight 
and kind of like merge them in between, you know, that like, I like watching Velma Kelly come out and kind of command the spotlight, make it be put on her face. And then like Renee getting flashlights in her face and then having that become a spotlight for her. I think every time they use light as part of the story, it feels very stagey and theatrical to me, but because the rest of the set is so minimalist, I like it. It's interesting. I'll go with it. It feels like a good moment of like synergizing a stage look with a film look. Yeah. You know, weirdly, like I thought my big problem with this film was uh, was going to be something else. And I realized I've kind of made up a problem in my own head over the years since I've seen Chicago. I thought my main problem with Chicago was that every time they dance, that the camera would just cut only to their feet and we would just only watch their feet dance <laughs> as though like it wasn't really Catherine Zeta-Jones or Renee Zelliger. Right. That, that was what I was expecting to see. Um, and I realized that actually isn't the case. Like when Renee and Catherine Zeta-Jones are dancing, they're actually like dancing, dancing. And I think they're, I think they're pretty good. They're good enough for me. I'm happy with it. There's really only that little insert of fake feet. I think I was building it all off that like tap dance number that Richard Gere does when he's cross-examining Velma on the stage and he's like kind of sweating and trying to like poke holes in this idea of the doc of the diary that she's like found. Um, which is his way of, of course, getting both of his clients off at once. That one does a lot of like cutting to his face, cutting to his feet, cutting to his face, cutting to his feet. And I have no idea if those are his real feet or not, but I know that I didn't believe that they were his real feet because of the way that it was edited. And it made me think that he wasn't really dancing. So if that is Richard (laughs) Gere really dancing, I feel sorry that the editing did him dirty. I believe that you and I probably are coming at this from a very critical point of view. Are there people out there that liked it differently when it came out? I mean, I'm thinking that we're probably the lone ones. Uh, Any bad reviews of this? Honestly, there weren't that many. Like when you go through the reviews of this movie, they really all feel like I was dying in the desert and you gave me water. I wanted musicals to come back so badly. This is a musical. I will not criticize anything about it. My God, it is a musical. Please give me more musicals. Like it, it, the reviews felt to me, you know, thirsty like very happy that this existed and almost like they're tiptoeing around it. Like they don't want to really say what they feel because they just want there to be more musicals on the world. Um, Only a few people really went for it and insulted this movie harshly. One of them being Anthony Lane from the New Yorker. This is what he said. The setting is so stylized, so shamelessly grounded in a hundred other shows and films that Chicago barely qualifies as a period piece. Indeed, it merely jabs at the celebrity lust of our own era. The songs in Chicago crash in one ear, barge around your brain for a minute or two, and then make a swift exit through the other ear, never to be heard again. The real harm is done to the senses of the people of the audience, who will find themselves in the unusual position of being snarled up in fishnets and assaulted by sequins. Is there anything in art or life less sexy than the incorrigible 24-hour desire to trumpet one's sexiness to the world? We are meant to be blown away by the sultry airs of this picture, but the very surfeit of them spoils the plan. What Marshall does by way of compensation is to edit his way out of trouble, cutting away furiously, not only during each song, but almost every line of each song, as though not daring to presume that younger viewers will be able to stomach more than four and a half seconds of music. Hmm, That's interesting. Yeah, this is hectic on the eye and bad for the confidence. We start to wonder, ungallantly, about the camera's chronic wish to glance aside. This is kind of what I was talking about here. Could it be that the performers might not weather its unstinting gaze? Many people will get off on the highs of this picture, but they might want to ask why there are no other levels. Lovers of the classical form were prepared to believe that it was natural, more of a thirsty emotional need than a luxury, for a character to break into song, whereas nowadays that perversity has to be explained. Most of the numbers are in Chicago are meant to unfurl within Roxy's imagination, 
And even then you can hear the grinding gear change as the action readies itself for a tune. So he's basically like, why aren't people dressed? It's getting boring that everybody's in underwear. And yeah, like, why are we cutting so fast? Which is true. Why are we cutting so fast? I mean, yes, like between Greece and Chicago in this like, what, 24 year stretch. Yeah, MTV exists. And so maybe there is a belief that people only want fast cut editing. But I think it is really annoying. It, it annoys me how much they cut in this movie because like in that last number, say when like Renee Zellweger and Catherine Zeta-Jones are dancing, I really do just want to watch them dance. I think they're doing a great job, but like he keeps cutting and I can't really pay attention or appreciate them. Whereas that last right. number of Grease, it's not even cut. We're watching John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John do that whole thing. And I think getting to watch them do it unbroken makes you appreciate it even more. And here, I think the editing is taking away from our ability to appreciate it, which is crazy because it like gets nominated for best editing. It won best editing. What on well, earth? Well, I mean, but can we talk about what won best editing, but two years ago, Bohemian Rhapsody? Oh, God. I mean, want to talk about insanity in editing. I mean, that, there you go. Right? I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, sometimes the best editing is when you just let the camera hang out because you I know think it's what like you sometimes have. The, sometimes I feel like the best editing is just given to people who edit the fuck out of a movie. Like, it's like, oh my God, there's so much editing here. Like, we got to give them an award. Yeah, well, they did so much cutting. This really took some time. <laughs> it's like, is it that, 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 that hard now that you're not even using scotch tape? Like, uh, I don't know. I really respect editing. So I hate to see bad editing get rewarded because I feel like that's a betrayal of people who are good editors. Yes, I agree. I mean, I 100% agree. So, Amy, I guess, you know, the answer is simple. We're not putting this into space, but I think it's actually, like, again, not to pat ourselves on the back, but I do think this is an interesting conversation for us to have because in understanding what we like and why we elevate certain things, it's often good for us to go and have a conversation like this or Shawshank where we really try to unpack how... The public was wrong. I mean, basically, I was going to try to like, I was going to try to like sugarcoat it. But I mean, there is something like we should look back on certain things that are viewed as amazing. They're, they're embraced by the culture. Sometimes there's a reason for it. Sometimes there isn't. And I think the big debate over Citizen Kane is, is it actually good? And I think that was our first episode. I would hate to re-listen to it because I feel like that was so long ago. But the idea being like, is there something there, there? And I, and a lot of the times when the Academy Awards are involved and a movie takes the world by storm, there isn't a there there. And that, that common idea of like, well, what was the runner up to best picture is actually better than the best picture. And that happens a lot. And I think this is an interesting conversation to talk about movie musicals. And it helps actually make me look deeper into what we're talking about. And when we make these decisions, what is actually working and not working. I agree. I agree. Because if when people think of musicals on film, they think of Chicago and then they're like, oh, I must not like musicals. That breaks my heart. So I want right. to be able to point out where I think Chicago could have been like a better movie, where I could have made better choices, where like Richard Gere could have just burst into the scene singing his own song of his own accord. We don't need this conceit. We could own that we're a musical. That Absolutely. would be beautiful. And I will say that Bill Condon has gone on to write The Greatest Showman. So he's got that lesson down. He also went on to direct like Breaking Dawn 1 and 2, the, the best Twilight movie. So no diss on you, Bill Condon, for what you've done later. But yes, I, this this movie, I feel like, to me, huge stumble that betrays the entire idea of a musical. 
But yes, as we go forward, I think it's time to leave the Hollywood musical for a minute. I mean, here we are with Chicago watching um, kind of the distillation of what happens when an entire industry is uncomfortable with the idea of making a musical. So what if we go someplace that has never been uncomfortable with the idea of musicals, that loves musicals, that almost can't imagine the idea of making a movie without a song number in it? You know I'm talking about Bollywood. Of course you are. I mean, I know that because we've talked, we've talked about it before. But uh, but it was hard to figure out what is the one that we want to do. And I think there's a lot of conversation between us all, and we narrowed it down. And Amy, do you want to tell us what we're going to be doing? Okay, and you know what? It has been almost impossible to choose which Bollywood movie to do because there are so many that we've been like kicking around. But I think the one that we should go with to transition well from Chicago to the Bollywood musical is one of the Bollywood movies that made history as being one of the rare Bollywood films nominated for an Oscar. Mm. Uh, And it was nominated for an Oscar the year before Chicago came out. It has continued to be one of the most respected, revered, adored, crowd-pleasing musicals ever made. Um, It's got 95% on our own Rotten Tomatoes, and it is free right now on Netflix. And that movie is Lagan. All right. Now, Lagan, just if you don't know... Uh, is spelt L-A-G-A-A-N. It's Once Upon a Time in India. It is a uh, a three-hour and 44-minute film. I mean, it, Amy, we are going in here. This is like Lawrence of Arabia. Whew, it's a big one. It's going to be on Netflix. Um, so maybe start watching a little bit every night and uh, chip away. Well, you got some time to Lagan and chill. Put on a little bit All of right. Nightly Lagan, get your Lagan on. And I if you do manage Netflix. to watch it in like yeah. one whole chunk, good for you, man. Get your snacks ready. Let's do it. Yeah, Dive maybe, into the world of Lagan. Maybe I will. And by the way, 95 on Rotten Tomatoes, 84 on Metacritic, 8 out of 10 on IMDb. So if you've never watched a Bollywood musical, this might be the one. This might be the one. So here we go, Amy. Uh, take a little listen to the music of Lagan. मधुबन में भले कान्हा किसी को पीस मिले मन में तो राधा के ही प्रेम के हैं फूल खिले किसलिए राधा जले किसलिए राधा जले बिना सोचे समझे किसलिए राधा जले किसलिए राधा जले All right, and uh, we'll see you next time as we talk about Once Upon a Time in India. That's all for today's show, and remember to rate and review this show. 
Tell people about it. It really, truly helps. A big thank you to our super producer, Josh Richmond, and our audio engineer extraordinaire, Devin Bryant. Thank you guys for making this show sound so amazingly great. And our MVP behind the scenes, Molly Reynolds, for making sure that this show runs on time and that we have our research at hand. I also want to give a shout out to Kim Troxell for her amazing art. And if you want to keep this conversation going, please do so at discord.gg slash Paul Shear. There's an unspooled section there where we have debates and votes and polls. We also have our Facebook group, the Unspooled Podcast Facebook group that is still an amazing place to be. I want to give a huge uh, shout out to everyone in all those forums for keeping these conversations going. And I also want to let you know that you can head on over to tpublic.com to check out our Unspooled merch. That's right. Go to tpublic.com slash stores slash unspooled to see what we got in the store. And that's all. We'll see you next week on Unspooled. Thank you.